Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Frank Marlowe. I am the Dean of Academics here at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with us, we are a graduate school here in the nation's capital. We offer five master's degrees, about 18 graduate certificates. We have a doctoral program that we just started. And we also hold about 100 events like this every year. Uh, if you're interested in signing up for some of these, uh, if you haven't if you're not on the mailing list already, if you're interested in signing up for some of these, go to our brand new website, just launched, the new version just launched today. Uh, so it's, if you're familiar with it, you're going to have to relearn how to, how to navigate it. Um, but it's, it's much nicer and, and uh, went, a lot of hard work went into it. Um, if you have questions about degree programs or anything else on the academic side of things, feel free to grab anyone uh, here, works here, and we can happily give you more information about all that. Very excited to have uh, Mr. Jim Hake uh, here today. Uh, he is the founder of Spirit of America, which was founded in response to 9-11 attacks. Uh, it is a citizen-funded nonprofit that provides humanitarian and economic assistance in response to needs identified by U.S. troops and diplomats abroad. In 2000 and 2001, he was named a technology pioneer by the World Economic <coughs> Forum. Uh, he's been honored at the Marines Evening Parade, he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, an honorary member of the U.S. Army Civil Affairs Regiment, and a member of State Department's Stabilization Advisory Council. He has lectured on entrepreneurship at uh, Dartmouth's Tuck uh, School of Business, the SMU Cox School of Business, and USC's Annenberg School for Communication. He's given TED Talks, he's spoken at the Aspen Institute, He's spoken at uh, the Bush School at Texas A&M, as well as at the Fletcher School at Tufts. He received a BA and graduated, <coughs> graduated with distinction in economics from Dartmouth, and he earned an MBA from the Stanford University Graduate School. So please uh, help me welcome Mr. Jim. So thanks, everybody. Uh, there are a lot of uh, members of the family and friends of the family here today. We really appreciate you all coming out and uh, those who are new to what we're doing uh, as well. And uh, I, uh, John, uh, Dr. Wintowski, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, among many people I know, you are a rock star. Uh, so it's uh, I'm not going to try to do any karaoke with you today or anything, but uh, uh, thanks for having me and having all of us uh, here today. Well, it's a, a real honor. Uh, so we're all, all of us here are concerned about and, and want to find ways to strengthen our security and find ways for America to do better operating in the world. And I think when you look at what's happened in the years since 9-11, you have to think, well, we ought to be able to do better than what we've done. And that is kind of the American way of trying to find ways to improve things, always do better. And the, the basic idea behind what we're doing with Spirit of America and the idea of citizens as instruments of, of national power is using our citizens and what they can bring to the effort in support of our government and our personnel is one way for sure to do better. So, um, you know, as was mentioned, uh, we're a nonprofit organization, we're privately funded, we're not a contractor. Everything we do is in response to what U.S. personnel, troops, and diplomats say is needed on the ground in some usually very difficult part of the world. Our advisors include uh, folks like General Stan McChrystal, uh, Admiral Eric Olson, former Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson, uh, Michelle Flournoy, uh, and prior to his nomination, Secretary Mattis. So we've been able to uh, get a great collection of brain power behind what we're doing. Uh, so the, the role that, uh, the idea that citizens can play a role in national security is, you know, to some a little bit surprising. And, and here's the way that, uh, we think about is everyone understands there are gaps in education and a role for citizens and private philanthropy. There are gaps in healthcare, public health, veteran services, uh, gaps in disaster response and roles for citizens and private philanthropy. The thing is that there are gaps in national security as well and Spirit of America fills those gaps. 
So I'm going to give you a few examples to take it uh, out of the clouds and down to the ground. Uh, these are all examples of uh, things that are either are happening or have happened on the ground in uh, some very interesting environments. So uh, about four years ago, when uh, the current chairman, General uh, Joe Dunford, was giving his testimony to, to prior to his uh, being appointed uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he was asked what the principal uh, worry he had was. And he identified Russia as the most uh, important existential threat to the United States and the things we stand for. So another member of our team and I looked at each other and said, well, we ought to look into that. <laughs> and uh, I, that sounds a little naive, uh, but it's actually how it happened. So we made some contacts at the Department of Defense. Uh, they made introductions to uh, the gentleman, one of the gentlemen you see there, uh, ben Hodges, who was the Commander General of U.S. Army Europe, as well as Jeff Pyatt, the Ambassador to Ukraine. Prior to getting on the ground in Ukraine, we talked to the folks at the State Department Regional Bureau. And as we do in every situation, said, you know, what, are your, what are you worried about? What are you trying to accomplish with respect to Russia? And so we talked about that, and they said, well, the spirit of America any, ever do anything that's media-related? And we said, well, we'll do anything that makes sense. It's easy to waste a lot of money in media to no effect. And the approach that we would take would be to find the local people, in the case of Ukraine, who wanted to get after the problem of Russian propaganda. Because Americans, whether at that time we were based in Los Angeles, whether it's Los Angeles or Washington, D.C., or you know, anywhere, aren't going to know how to get after that problem of Russian propaganda the same way that the people who are dealing with it every day are. So we uh, got down on the ground, uh, met with Ambassador Pyatt, uh, who was the uh, ambassador of Ukraine at the time. He's now ambassador to Greece one of the best reputations in the Foreign Service, a career Foreign Service officer, very forward-leaning and was very interested in how private support like ours could help him and what he was trying to accomplish in Ukraine. A member of his country team had identified two Ukrainians who had the, uh, the plan for an FM radio station to meet the information and entertainment needs of Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines in the east, that little box that you see there which is where uh, Russia launched a, an invasion in addition to the invasion of Crimea. So uh, they wanted to, uh, they said that their, their soldiers out there were isolated from the capital. They were bombarded daily by Russian propaganda through every means possible. Uh, television and radio, of course, the internet, social media, uh, text messages and phone calls. So they would, they're, they're, you know, among other things that happened, uh, the Russians were able to hack the uh, cell phone system there and would be able to identify who the soldiers were and then call family members back in the capital and say, uh, your husband has died. So you know, these are not uh, soft-edged uh, propaganda efforts. Um, they uh, showed us, the commanders that we met with here showed us a text message that basically the Russians said, you know, the, the uh, West will never remember your sacrifice. The East will never forget, and we're going to track you down and kill you. Go home. So this was day in and day out, this sort of thing. So we verified the need that there was actually a, you know, a real problem on the front lines. And these Ukrainians uh, had a plan, not just a general idea, for this FM radio station, based in Kiev, but broadcast in the East. So in the span of uh, it was three weeks, it took us to, that much time to verify and validate that this was a solid idea. Uh, they had staffing lined up for it. They had a facility lined up for it. What they lacked were transmitters to broadcast the signal and radio station you know, production equipment in the capital. So in the span of uh, three weeks, we committed about $150,000 to that, got it off the ground, and uh, then about a month later, uh, went out to the front lines to see, was anybody listening to this? And we would uh, drive into uh, uh, bases uh, out in the, uh, what the Ukrainians call the ATO zone, and sure enough, you know, during dinner and you know, meals and so forth, in the mess halls, the radio station, Army FM, was being broadcast. Uh, this is uh, the studio in Kiev and one of the uh, towers on which the transmitters we bought were uh, provided. Um, it was so successful that the Ukrainian government, the Ministry of Defense, which at the time didn't have enough money for basic beans and bullets, funded the expansion of it. So we had earmarked funds to buy more transmitters. Uh, they, we didn't need to spend those funds, and since then uh, we have brought in radio station executives from the U.S. to advise this Ukrainian station on radio station operations, programming, and so forth. So it's not just the you know, money and material goods that our citizens can bring to the table, it's the know-how. 
And the fellow that we sent over uh, was a former uh, Clear Channel uh, chief executive officer and who had a ton of experience with radio stations here in the U.S. So, Serbia. In September, our European project manager and I went to uh, Serbia to see if we could have a more strategic impact on what Russia was doing in the Balkans. And met with the deputy chief of mission, uh, the defense attache, and as we did in Ukraine, uh, asked, what are you working on, what are your priorities? Uh, they said that they were uh, getting a lot of guidance and direction and, and pressure to do more to counter Russian influence in Serbia. And, uh, you know, I had been, we had all, at Spirit of Berg, been thinking about this uh, countering question for quite a while. And it has seemed to us that our national security and foreign policy is too dominated by what we're against. You know, we counter uh, terrorism, we counter extremism, we counter Russian aggression, we counter Chinese influence. The thing, list of things we counter is pretty long. And, and of course, those are all good things to be against. But they have made us, by focus on being against them and, and countering them and not anything else, has made us, I think, pretty reactive and defensive, has not played to our strengths. And uh, you know, what we are for will always be more powerful than we're against. Because we, the things we're for are many of the things that the best things in the world that the world has going for. So uh, we anyway had this conversation. The uh, uh, embassy team said that they were concerned about uh, you know countering Russian influence, and our project manager and I said, well, why don't we talk about increasing American influence instead? And um, you know just a, a pretty common sense idea, but a very different way of looking at it. And they were very supportive of that idea. So we have been uh, executing a strategy in Serbia since to not worry about what Russia is saying or doing, not worry about the misinformation, to do what we're good at and to let the Russians react to that if they want to. And uh, what that's amounted to is a, a, a high volume of uh, small-scale assistance projects that make it clear that Americans are there to help and are doing things to help Serbians have a better life. It's a very simple message, and the message is based in actions, not just words. So uh, this scene here is uh, the renovation in a tiny town in southern Serbia called Vranja. Uh, there was a, a very active a woman in the community who suggested that we help this gym because it's very, very influential in this town. The gym, uh, you really can't see it here, but it was not in nearly as good a shape as the original gym in Rocky. So it was uh, pretty beat up, and the equipment also really beat up. She said, you know, if you can get uh, some American soldiers working with the young men who train at this kickboxing gym, uh, that would really make a big difference in this community, because young men from this kickboxing gym, they compete on the national stage, the European stage. This kickboxing gym is a big deal in this town. Now, we're happy she told us that, because we would, of course, never know that. So what happened was uh, we had... Uh, uh, U.S. soldiers and Serbian soldiers working side-by-side, side, young Serbian kickboxers in this town that is uh, you know, largely forgotten by almost any aid and assistance program. And um, with, with each one of these projects, and this is just one example, we uh, integrate local media coverage around it and make it um, as social media friendly as possible. So in... Here we go. Uh, so... Uh, this photograph in the middle is of uh, an American soldier, uh, a Serbian soldier, and one of the kickboxers. So we took these photographs of each one of the kickboxers, we gave them hard copies of the photograph, because no one gets hard copies of photographs anymore, and, and you know, color printers in southern Serbia are really expensive. And we also gave them digital copies so they could post on Facebook. And that is the uh, Facebook post of uh, that young man who uh, never would have said anything about you know, I heart the U.S. Army before this happened. And so people are getting the experience of who Americans really are and hearing it from, if they're not there themselves, hearing about it from their, their uh, neighbors and peers. <coughs> so in uh, Niger, a totally different uh, circumstance, and what you're uh, getting is an idea of our flexibility 
that you know a uh, radio station in one place and a kickboxing gym renovation another is about as diverse as you get. The common thread is all supporting U.S. interests and objectives, and you know legitimately helping people who are our friends or allies, or who we want to be our friends or allies. So, in the case of uh, Niger, uh, several years ago, the commander of Special Operations Command Africa, a, a two-star general. Uh, suggested we focus on Niger as his priority country in, in West Africa and pointed out that it's you know, besieged by uh, extremism and violence in every direction. You know, Boko Haram from the south, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb from the west and others, um, the beginnings of the Islamic State uh, coming down from Libya. And uh, said, you know, get down there and see what you all can do. And we met with one of his captains, a special operations captain, who uh, said the very attention-getting thing when we met with him well, my job here is to prevent war. Okay. <laughs> that got us our attention, of course. And uh, he said, well, how are you going to do that? He said, well, uh, to influence the uh, key tribes in this area. It was northwest uh, Niger. And you know, we asked, well, how many of them are there? He said, well, there are about 20,000. We go, oh, boy. <laughs> you know? He said, but I've spent the last five or six months identifying the 29 most influential. Uh, so one of our team uh, went with this captain, his team, and the host nation military up to meet with these 20, 29 tribal leaders and listen to what they had to say, listen to what, they wasn't, what was important to them. And what they said was uh, livestock health was their key concern. You know, livestock, you know, cattle especially, are the, you know, it's a tribal way of life, primary food source, primary source of income. Cattle were more, you know, cattle health is actually more important than human health because human health derives from the health of the cattle. And the second thing um, they said was that we are really concerned about opportunity for our youth. They don't see any hope for a better future, and they're the most likely ones to lead our tribes into rebellion and build conflict and then war, which is exactly what had happened in neighboring Mali uh, before. So it was not just a theoretical threat of war, it was a very practical one. So in near real time, uh, our uh, field project manager, this army captain, came up with a package of assistance that directly and near immediately met the, the needs and concerns of these tribal leaders. One was uh, to pay some uh, veterinarians who were working closer to the capital to go up. Uh, we paid them uh, you know, to, to vaccinate the cows. We gave them dirt bikes so they could go from wherever the road stopped out to these tribes and provided the vaccination so they could um, you know, get to work on, on the uh, tribes of cattle. The other thing, which is, I thought, you know, a really uh, clever and brilliant solution they came up with, was we funded scholarships for tribal youth to get veterinary education close to the capital so they could go back to their tribes, meet the needs of the tribes, and all of that was announced at a giant tribal festival. So the first year, I think there were 15 young men who uh, we provided scholarships for. Uh, but that was announced so that everyone and all these tribes understood, well, something is happening now that is different than has ever happened. Okay. And so um, uh, it had an influence uh, more broadly than just the, uh, those participants. So the, uh, uh, you know, here's uh, one of our project managers uh, working with the, uh, those who have been trained and received scholarships helping them uh, you know, with some of the equipment and supplies they need to, uh, to vaccinate the cattle. Um, you know, there are a lot of factors that have gone into what's happened in Nigeria over the last few years. But you know, thus far, stability has been maintained, and the support from our citizens played a crucial role in being catalytic to you know, the kind of results that we've seen and the kind of war prevention. So I think anyone, uh, you know, and I, I know a, a number of you have... Uh, served in uniform uh, that are here today. And anyone who has, and most of the rest of us as well, would say, well, if we can prevent war, it's much better than fighting it. And you know, easier said than done, but uh, there's some techniques that really work. And this last example is maybe the most uh, dramatic. And uh, this goes back to 2015. Uh, when the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria was uh, expanding its footprint, uh, was launching attacks, was pretty much at the height of its power. And so we heard from uh, this fellow here, who's now retired, uh, Master Sergeant Aaron Zawasta, 
for those who are not uh, familiar with special forces teams, you know, he was what he refers to as the team dad uh, of his uh, ODA, his Operational Detachment Alpha. And um, he had heard from one of his uh, superiors, well, you, you ought to reach out to Spirit of America. I think they can help you guys with what you're trying to do with the Peshmerga. And, you know, as he tells a story now, uh, you know, it was described what we do and the kind of assistance that we can provide. And the first two times he was told, he said, you know, I didn't believe it. <laughs> and he said, so I didn't, you know, contact you guys. Uh, you know, it just seemed too good to be true. But then, uh, you know, again, his, his uh, boss said, you really you ought to contact these guys. So the third time he actually did. And what he asked for was uh, really quite simple. Um, uh, tourniquets for his Peshmerga partner forces. So he had this team of 12 Special Forces soldiers advising about a thousand Peshmerga. They were based in Kirkuk. And, uh, you know, the ISIS had a great interest in capturing and taking over the oil fields of Kirkuk. And if they'd done that, you know, not only would they have had control of a population of about a million people, but they would have had the income generated by the oil fields to further fuel their, their terror, both domestic, you know, in that area as well as worldwide. So it was a a big battle. Um, and they were, you know, the ISIS was law launching offensives regularly. Um, as uh, uh, Aaron uh, tells a story, uh, the uh, Peshmerga were taking casualties all the time. People were bleeding out on the battlefield, which does a lot to reduce morale when you're in a fight. And uh, so 200 tourniquets uh, was one thing he asked for. The other were GPS devices. Because the Peshmerga would be out and about, you know, identifying where ISIS was, and would try to call in support from the United States, but to say, well, um, between the rock and the tree doesn't work. So unless you can identify your position precisely, you can't get help. So the uh, GPS devices allowed them to uh, identify their position precisely. Um, the um, uh, air support was able to be brought in. And Aaron said that the two things of reducing the number of uh, casualties for the Peshmerga changed everything. The momentum shifted. And the GPS devices really helped them when they were starting to get out forward again to get support from the United States. And he credits what was uh, less than $7,000 of support, 20 GPS devices and 200 tourniquets with turning the course of that uh, battle and fight around which, uh, extraordinary. So, um, these are real on-the-ground examples. There are, you know, we've provided uh, assistance in uh, more than 60 countries now. Uh, everything, uh, you know, our, our uh, field operations project managers who are uh, all U.S. military veterans, and uh, which I'll get to them in a second. Uh, for those of you who might be wondering about this, there is a legal framework which uh, governs our collaboration with the military. This took, uh, well, we were recognized by Congress last year in the National Defense Authorization Act. So there's language in there that uh, recognize and recognizes our relationship with the Department of Defense and uh, encourages the department to work more with us. And that led to an agreement uh, between DOD and Spirit of America. So for those of you who have uh, known a little bit about the twists and turns of our uh, you know, uh, run-ins uh, with some of the military attorneys over the years, this took only about uh, eight years to get done. And uh, uh, it, part of it is that the, uh, there's a, a document in the Department of Defense called the Joint Ethics Regulation, which governs everything that the military and military personnel can and can't do with respect to ethics. And uh, we have a uh, <coughs> awesome a legal intern, uh, raise your hand, <laughs> uh, who joined us this summer. And uh, so I said, you know, I've always been wondering this. Can you count how many pages are in the joint ethics regulation? The core document as well as the first level of documents it refers to. He stopped counting at 11,000 pages. So I don't know how high 11,000 pages is, but when you're up against that and, and the reading of the tea leaves that that sort of thing uh, represents, you can understand why there would be uh, uh, friction, let's say, in the legal system about well, even permissible. You know, no one's ever done this before. A privately funded organization that's not a contractor that's working aligned alongside our personnel in Niger or wherever else. Anyway, so this was a uh, big thing. This really opens it up not for Spirit of America, but for any kind of uh, almost any kind of citizen support to uh, our missions abroad.
So the, the, the basic point here is that our citizens can play a crucial role in strengthening our security and whether you view it as supporting America as a force for good in the world or helping achieve broader objectives that we have, it's all the same idea. And our citizens, in support of what our personnel on the front lines uh, can do, can make an extraordinary difference. And our uh, field team works on the ground in the places that I just went through. So this is uh, on the right, uh, Chris Clary delivering tourniquets to the Peshmerg. Chris is back there. Uh, Raise your hand there, Chris. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, Chris is a, a former uh, Special Forces soldier, a Green Beret, and uh, has been with Spirit of America about five years now, uh, making an extraordinary contribution. And Terrell Chandler, who is in the next photograph facing us, uh, is also here. Terrell, there you go. Uh, so uh, Terrell's another, uh, well, still a Naval Reservist, um, but, but uh, was part of the Navy... Uh, uh, cultural support team uh, effort in Afghanistan, which if you don't know, uh, and it's hard to get her to brag about it, so I like to, um, you know, she was selected, went through a selection by the Navy SEALs, training by the Navy SEALs to embed with uh, SEAL teams, uh, uh, Army Rangers, Green Berets in Afghanistan to be able to provide the uh, uh, interface between them and half of Afghan's population, the, the, the female women population. So, uh, these are uh, uh, just outstanding uh, citizens, outstanding Americans who prove that you don't have to be in uniform to serve the nation. So that is uh, what I've got. I've uh, offered a few discussion topics. Happy to take any questions um, about how citizens can, can play a role. Yes? Could you some uh, detail on how you guys determine through your connection that uh, Jerry gets <coughs> GPS were most needed, and you got it, and maybe the military didn't hear that message, or was it just through conversation? Well, it was by talking to uh, uh, Master Sergeant Zwasta, and he was the one who said tourniquets and GPS devices, and, and things like that, where you go, well, that makes immediate sense. You know, we always ask, okay, whatever the idea is, why can't government funding be used to do it? And the answer varies quite a bit, uh, which I'll answer in that case, but... The basic idea is there are gaps in what our largest systems and bureaucracies can do in terms of flexibility at the lowest level. There will always be gaps. So even if the government gets it 95% right, which would be an, almost an A+, right, that 5% can make the difference between life and death, success and failure. So in the case of the Peshmerga, the interesting uh, situation was uh, military assistance had to flow through the U.S. to its counterparts in Iraq which were all in Baghdad. And there was a pretty uneasy relationship between uh, you know, Baghdad and Erbil or Kurdistan. So you know, the, the things that went to uh, Baghdad, for example, didn't necessarily get up to uh, Kurdistan. And didn't, certainly didn't get up there in a timely enough fashion for what was going on. Did they? Can you explain that concept of, of not being neutral? And along with that, since most NGOs you know, claim to be neutral, how is your relationship with other non-governmental organizations when your philosophy is so uh, radically different than, uh, than probably every other one? So the, uh, uh, Dave, uh, Colonel Maxwell, uh, also Special Forces, he retired, um, asked what, what about, what does, not, what does not neutral mean? And it's a really interesting and, and profound uh, thing. In uh, the non-governmental organization world, uh, most of the organizations that provide international assistance adhere to the principles of neutrality and independence. Neutrality means you do not take a side in any conflict or controversy. Not taking a side means you do not go up to uh, Master Sergeant Aaron Zwasson and say, how can we help you? That would be taking a side. So the assistance model um, is based on neutrality. So theoretically, you know, both sides allow you to operate in conflict areas. The Islamic State does not allow anyone that it doesn't want to be there to operate in a conflict area. So the idea of neutrality in those situations doesn't have much practical uh, effect. But that's the philosophy behind it. So neutrality and independence means uh, you provide, you commit to providing your assistance independent of any uh, political, economic, or military objective. So we're also not independent. We're not part of the government, of course, 
but we only provide our assistance in support of those objectives. If it doesn't support those objectives, we won't do it. So um, it's uh, you know an interesting uh, area in which, say, there, there are really big gaps because organizations will not do what we do as a matter of principle. It's not some vague philosophy, but a you know, hard, hard uh, principle. Uh, at the same time, our relationship with the organizations who are neutral and independent are actually quite good in the field. I think back in Washington, it's maybe a little bit more uneasy, but you know, out in the field, um, the vast majority of people are actually trying to do good things, trying to work together to produce desired results. That we will do things other people can't can be very complimentary. So in the field, it's been, been great. And really, we haven't spent that much time with um, folks back here, um, you know, just because we're, we're busy. Yes? Can you talk about the relationship with donors and our, when, when a project is identified, uh, is it tied to a specific interest of a donor in the U.S., or is it a, a pool of funds that goes through that? So the, the, the question is, how does the funding for our projects uh, work, and what role do our donors play? in uh, what we do or, or don't do. Uh, so there are a couple of ways that we uh, approach things. Um, you know, if you go to our website, there are a number of projects listed there. Uh, anyone can give uh, you know, $10 or whatever to support a particular project. And 100% of those funds go to whatever that is, whether it's uh, you know, radio station equipment for Ukraine or uh, GPS devices for special forces in Iraq or whatever it is. That um, you know, it's a what we call 100% promise that 100% of your funding goes to that. And if we don't need it, we'll actually offer you a, a refund of, of your funds. Uh, at the same time, we have uh, other donors who provide unrestricted funding, so that we, uh, on some projects, can act immediately uh, without going through that that loop. Uh, but it's all privately funded. We uh, have received support from uh, $10. I think a few member of our teams have given five. But I'm working on that. <laughs> uh, not naming names, don't worry. Um, uh, so it, you know, it's, it's uh, a little ten dollars, uh, and to uh, our we have major supporters who are giving a uh, million dollars a year, which allow us to do all the things that allow us to do projects where we can offer that hundred percent promise. Okay. Yes. How, do you, how do you interface with the local governments? And you talked a little bit about that in Ukraine. How you did? Then when we were trying to support the uh, integrity of the local government and, and show that they're playing a role in, in building their government too, and their, their people. How do you deal with that issue? Uh, so the question is about how we interface with the local government because they, we want them and their personnel and their you know, country to be solving its own problems without the U.S. involved, involved, involved forever and getting credit for it. So, uh, uh, Ukraine, I, I touched on that. Niger, what I didn't mention was when this package of assistance was announced, it was at, uh, you know, with the scholarships and veterinarians and, and all of that. It was announced at something called the Cure Soleil, uh, which is a giant, which is an annual tribal festival in that part of Niger. And the you know, U.S. personnel were there. We, no one, none of us, you know, the, the U.S. military nor Spirit of America were secret about who we were and what we had done. But the announcement was made by the regional governor, by the regional uh, military commander, and that was we. It was done that way, specifically to establish and help strengthen the uh, linkages between between the tribes and the uh, regional government. So it depends. We we always fall in. That wasn't our idea. That was the uh, special operations team's uh, idea, and so how we message things. Uh, has the same kind of flexibility in terms of what we do. So we can go like that, which is, you know, it's not about the U.S., it's about <coughs> making things work locally. Uh, so it was very low visibility, no uh, flags waving. And in Ukraine, Ambassador Pyatt said, I want to let the Ukrainians know that Americans and the American people are here helping. So we did press conferences and uh, all that sort of thing. So it, it, it just depends on what... Uh, is appropriate for the situation. Yes? Hi, um, you're a part of Washington Tomorrow program. My question revolves around how and why, because all that you have done seems really sensible and reasonable actions. Why can't diplomatic staff or military or intelligence staff complete these actions? Why does it take the private sector to this 
Well, uh, I'll, I'll answer that, but the, the main thing is they do a lot. So we talk about the things they haven't done, yeah, because that's where we play a role. So we don't, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate for me today to talk about all the things the U.S. military has done in these years that didn't involve us. Uh, so we talk about the gaps that we filled. So the, the uh, uh, you know, there's a, a business parallel to this, which is, you know, why can't government do it all? And as I was getting at earlier, um, you know, the, you take anything, public education, public health, uh, veteran services, I mean, literally anything. Um, and there's a role for, you know, the private sector and citizens to play in filling gaps that are really important gaps. Um, you know, in education, uh, an organization called Teach for America uh, provides teachers into public schools. Teach for America is not creating public schools. They're supporting the public schools that are there by doing something that the public schools themselves have a hard time doing, even though, in theory, they should. So in any um, large system, and our defense department especially, is the largest institution in the country. There are you know, two and a half, three million people in it. And to have an organization, institution like that, be able to uh, be flexible at the lowest level has never happened in the history of the world. And it never will. Uh, it doesn't happen in business. It's why Microsoft is not Google. So, you know, just on, on uh, that point, in 1998, Microsoft had um, 23,000 employees, $14 billion in cash, and perfect ability to hire, fire, deploy money however it wanted. It had been through the antitrust investigations. It could do anything it wanted. In 1998, Google was started with two engineers and $200,000 checks. Right? Why couldn't Microsoft do it? Well, you know, I don't know, but they didn't. And uh, there's always a place for you know, uh, that kind of venture capital approach and always a need for it. So, you know, and, you know, we, you know, the thing that Microsoft didn't have, that the Department of Defense has, the Department of State has, everybody in this country gets a vote on what they do with their money. Imagine that. And that's the way democracy is supposed to work. So, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to, to have that, uh, and so it's a, it's a blunt instrument, if you will. Um, it's hard to have it really be fine-tuned. But citizens can provide that uh, fine-tuning part. It's also about authority, so. Yes. I, mean, that, I think that's really gets at the gap there that DOD or state can't do certain things, but you can't. Right. That's the real contribution. Yeah, they're, 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 uh, as Dave was saying, uh, there are authorities which you can spend money on this thing, but not that thing. Those things can change over time. They're, they start at Congress, and Congress isn't taking, you know, looking at you know, the, the scholarships in Niger over a period of three or four years. Uh, we spent about $70,000 on that. Congress is not looking at $70,000, obviously. So, um, you know, it established some guidelines, and those are pretty much hardwired. It's hard to go outside of those guidelines. Um, it, it's just um, the nature of it, really. Yes? Does your agreement with DOD, the MOA, limit you in any way with regards to where you source cash and equipment uh, from a sort of corruption and I trust him for anything like that. I mean, if you want to buy boots that are made in Russia, are you limited in any way with that sort of, that sort of dynamic? Well, we haven't thought about buying boots in Russia. Right. So I, 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 uh, I'm guessing just wouldn't do it anyway. Um, but yeah, so there, there are uh, uh, restrictions just in terms of you know, U.S. law, uh, not specific to our agreement with the department about, you know, that we have to adhere to uh, OFAC and ITAR regulations in terms of what can be, um, uh, you know, sent from the U.S. abroad. Mostly we're buying things when it's material goods on the ground in a uh, particular place. Um, we, you know, the, we fall in on the Leahy vetting that uh, the U.S. has to do with its partner forces. So if we're providing something to Peshmerga forces, everybody that the U.S. is working with has been Leahy vetted. So there, there are some general legal structures out there which guide what we do um, that guides, you know, other, you know, whether it's a contractor or anyone else. Um, so we, uh, the, the, what we do from a project standpoint gets a, very much in the weeds as it would need to, to make sure that we don't run afoul of those uh, other, other laws. Tyler, do you have? Uh... Yeah, um, Jim, 
I just want to congratulate you for incredible work in all of these places. I find it just extraordinary that you're filling these gaps. I think it is remarkable that you have been able to do it in light of U.S. government bureaucracies. Uh, my son tried to do an Eagle Scout project of sending soccer balls and, and, and you know, blackboards and things like that to some of our troops in Iraq to, to help them help some of the local villages. And uh, there wasn't a single way in Washington, D.C. that this, this, this uh, thing could be done. Uh, but most of what you're doing here is public diplomacy. And we used to have a U.S. information agency uh, that, that would do things like broadcasting. We have the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which shut down our broadcasts to Russia and eastern Ukraine yeah. and continues continues to shut down broad radio broadcasts. Uh, the Peace Corps used to be treated more as a, a strategic instrument of American power. Now it's a complete orphan child. Uh, and the, the State Department, I don't know whether, you know, you, you seem to have gotten some support from some local State Department teams about the necessity of doing these things, but they seem incapable of doing anything within their own organization to make these things happen. And I'm just wondering, do you find that uh, outside of DOD, whether it's USAID, Peace Corps, or the, the State Department, or USAGM, is there any constituency you find for doing some of these things that, that you can take your very precious private sector dollars and, and work on projects that absolutely nobody can do? Right. I mean, there are, there, are, there are projects here that U.S. government agencies should be doing, and, and then you can go fill other gaps. Right. Well, I'll, I'll just tell one, so the, one story that both reinforces one of your points and, and answers your question. Um, the quick answer is yes, um, both on the State Department side and USAID side, um, they're in the field, very good support for our support. Uh, especially on the state side, because the USAID uh, folks are more programmatically driven from Washington, so they're not, they don't have a lot of flexibility just in terms of their mandate to go around and solve problems and figure it out. The Peace Corps is an you know, example of the people who do that. Um, so the example, I won't use the, uh, I won't mention the country specifically, uh, but it was a meeting about four weeks ago uh, in a country where Chinese influence is a big, is, is a big concern. And uh, the uh, Foreign Service officer, the, the uh, head of one of the uh, sections in the embassy, um, you know, after we, we'd never uh, talked to uh, this Foreign Service officer before, uh, said, this is like a dream come true, uh, and said, you know, we, we do a great job of, at 30,000 feet, establishing a strategic architecture for this country. We do a good job of getting it down to 4,000 feet and knowing pretty much exactly what we need to do here. What we lack is the ability to take action. And it's not because they don't want to take action, it's the authorities and restrictions. And uh, so, for example, uh, here's the chicken and egg uh, thing, and what we're expect to be doing in this country. Um, uh, the, the Foreign Service officer identified providing technical assistance to the host nation personnel so they could write better tenders and negotiate better contracts for infrastructure projects could be game-changing in this country. And uh, now our first thing is, okay, well, that's a great idea. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with the Chinese. We can improve the capacity of the host nation to deal with these issues. And uh, uh, so Great idea, why can't the government do it? Well, there's a chicken and egg thing, which is you can't issue a contract, which would take 18 to 24 months. Can't issue a contract unless you know exactly what technical assistance you need. You can't hire somebody to go do the figuring it out part. Now, uh, so what we're helping with, not with our own expertise, but uh, uh, with a firm that uh, provides pro bono uh, uh, experts to us, is doing that front end part of really figuring out peeling the onion to figure out exactly what technical assistance is needed in this country and providing enough of it to get the ball rolling so that then a contract can be issued because there, there is money for things like that it's just not good at that startup phase it's like having the uh it's the analogy of, of you know if the bank of america were the only financing source for entrepreneurs 
we would have a very different economy in Silicon Valley and everywhere else because it's just a different set of processes. So we can uh, uh, play a little bit of that venture capital role and uh, prove an idea, figure out an idea, and get it rolling. But the, 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 the point about civilians is, uh, you know, in almost everywhere we're operating now, it's a civilian-led mission. So we're, our team uh, uh, is always in touch with the uh, ambassador, the deputy chief of mission, to understand whatever, if it's a military team, that what we're doing is consistent with their guidance and objectives. Uh, but, you know, the, how we put it, and it's, it's true, is we are the best friend anybody trying to solve a problem could ever have. Because there are no strings attached. We'll help if we can. If we can't, we you know won't waste anyone's time. Um, but if you're trying to solve a problem and you can't do it any other way, uh, that's the role we play. There, there used to be an office in the, the old U.S. Information Agency called the Office of Private Sector Programs that would fund NGOs to do things that the government seemed incapable of doing. And it was really rather remarkably flexible you find that there's anything like that to which you can get some subsidy? Well, um, I don't know if that such a thing exists. We've not heard of it. We wouldn't accept government funding even if it were available and offered. And uh, two reasons. Um, one is, no matter what else anyone would say, we're sure that it would reduce our flexibility, that it would create a uh, oversight mechanism which would re reduce our flexibility. And the other thing is that we would be then belong to some part of the U.S. government. And that reduces a different part of flexibility, which is the ability to talk to anyone, military, civilian, high, low, in between, any hour of the day, and no one is upset that we're talking to them because we're part of someone else's organization. Yeah, I ran into that when I sold a business to a company in the 90s and thought, well, this will be great. We can do all sorts of things with this company. We did less than we did before we actually were part of them. For exactly that reason. So I, I learned that lesson. <laughs> uh, anything else? Yes, please. How do you determine what projects you're going to do? So you say you can help here, or you just go help and fish for things and figure out, oh, this might be interesting. How do you figure out which projects? So the question is about how, how we figure out which projects. And so it's a little bit of a combination of what you just said. Um, you know, the, the, and I'll give a couple of examples. The analogy is, um, you know, uh, let's say someone is working on their car. Uh, they need to fix it so they can drive across town. And sometimes people will say, hey, can you hand me a wrench? Because I need a wrench. I know exactly, you know, Aaron's Wasta, I need, uh, we need GPS devices and tourniquets. You know, can you hand those to me, basically? Um, so that is really well defined. It's clear. There's no, you know, real brain power that has to go into figuring that one out. Um, other ones are much more, uh, so you know, there are a number of examples like that. Um, others are much more uh, collaborative problem solving. So in Serbia, the vague objective is not you know, giving uh, GPS devices to Peshmerga. It's, well, how do we increase American influence in this country? And uh, so that's, you know, it's like the person, uh, instead of working on their car, says, hey, I have to get across town. How can you help me get there? And so it's a more collaborative problem solving. And so we operate across that uh, spectrum. And we, I, it gets our field team who are doing you know, the heavy lifting on, on that. Uh, and we, we focus on particular places where either commander, ambassador, or someone else at higher levels has said, you know, this is an interesting place. Could you take a look at it? Um, but we always get down on the ground to uh, see for ourselves. Yes. Well, the uh, whole operation is 25 people, and um, which is a, a pretty tiny organization. Um, and uh, half of those folks are focused on the field operations piece, and the half uh, you know, are mainly about supporting that. And why we can be effective and have an impact with that is, you know, take Niger for example. We would never go. Well, let us figure out uh, who the most influential tribes are in Niger. You know, it would take millions of dollars and years to do it. The Army captain <laughs> uh, So we fall in on the efforts of, uh, so it's, you know, from a business standpoint, highly leveraged in, in that way. Yes? Do you have a sense for what the need is? As you talk to the U.S. military and diplomats, are they saying, 
we'd love to see you double or triple or quadruple the number of projects. If you had X amount of money, you could really sort of um, you know fill the gaps around the world that you've identified. Yeah. So what the the uh, I'll say immediate target. It's not a next week next next week target, uh, but as soon as we can get there with you know, the awesome group of folks um, is an organization that's not 25 but 46 our budget this year will be around six million dollars so you know in the world of international aid and assistance a pretty small amount of money um, so the, the target is to go from 25 to 46 and from 6 to 15 uh, as an annual budget and that's where we have enough presence from a field operations standpoint to be able to know where we're really needed. That's not the end of the story. Um, we expect, because once you start talking to people and they're aware of a capability, then it changes how they solve a problem. Much like how venture capital changes what's possible for an entrepreneur. And when that's available, you start to think differently. So we're at the you know, half, you know, half of a percent range in getting going on that changing of, of uh, thinking. Yeah. Jim, do you, do you think about how you prioritize and focus your efforts? So, for example, you say so much need in Ukraine, we could just do a whole bunch more stuff there and have a bigger impact in one place rather than spreading it real thin. Yeah, so uh, Jim's uh, question is about how we focus and, and prioritize resources. And um, so it's, it's really uh, it's a great question. Um, the For the last, say, four or five years, part of what we were intentionally doing was building relationships we were going broader than deeper to be able to have the uh, case studies and existing proofs in pretty much every kind of environment where what we do would have an impact. And what we're, so that prioritized, in a way, breadth more than depth, although we were in the places, you were focused on the places that, you know, in the news more often. Um, and what we're uh, uh, going through now is a, a, a planning process to see where it's possible to go, where there's a need to go considerably deeper without, you know, losing sight of our model of, of flexibility. And, um, you know, there are a few really good uh, good candidates for that. So the, the shift will be balancing that breadth and what we think of as institutionalization in the relationships um, it, with, with uh, a greater focus on, on depth. And we you listen to the people who we're working with and you know, if they say, well, we really need you here, then we usually listen pretty closely to that. Yes, sir. Yeah, these uh, places in Afghanistan or Kirk or Niger, these are hot spots, not necessarily from a <coughs> tourist point of view. But uh, how do you take care of the security of these people that you send? Do you rely on your own intelligence or do you, or the host country or our embassy? We rely on the U.S. personnel that we're partnered up with. So in the case of uh, you know, the picture of uh, Terrell in Afghanistan, she was working within and alongside a uh, U.S. military team. Um, she was on their base, eating their food, walking side by side with them. And so that is one of the, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why a legal framework was necessary, because there was no precedent for that. There was a precedent for media, and there was a precedent for contractors, of course. Um, there was no precedent for a commander to say, I want these people here to help me fill in the blank. Um, and that's where the uh, uh, congressional recognition and, and uh, agreement have been really important. Yes? Do you find, given that uh, new legal framework, do you find other nonprofits that are trying to enter into the space? Well, uh, not yet, and we'd you know be kind of nice if they did because we're a little bit of a unicorn, uh, which is you know you tell people and especially supporters, well, okay, this uh, sounds pretty odd. <laughs> I've never heard of it before, and you can't walk down the street and see it. What we're doing, you know, it's in you know distant parts of the world. So having others who are doing it would actually help validate the category, and. Um, so, but we know we've not uh, we've not bumped into other folks yet, and I think part of that is the uh, difficulty of that initial breakthrough was a pretty big repellent to anybody who would, you know, as you said, with your son, with a, you know, not an operationalized idea, just this one thing that he wanted to do, 
you run into that, uh, I'm trying to think what the right analogy is, it's not a buzzsaw, it's more like a foggy swamp, you know. Uh, I'm sorry to use the swamp uh, analogy. Um, but, uh, you know, you run into that, you just, you don't know where to go. And the value of what we did was, before we ran into any of those issues, we had been at it for seven years. And it built some great relationships um, with folks who became, you know, combatant command commanders who had seen the value of what we had done on the ground and said, well, wait a minute, let's try to find a way to make this work. So it's a, a deterrent. And the other thing about the uh, nonprofit world is it's not really quick to innovate, uh, in my experience, and a lot of it is supply driven. People want to do what they want to do. They want to dig wells, they want to, I mean, all good things to do. Uh, they want to help build schools or, uh, and so we want to do what's needed, which is simple but a different way of looking at it. Yes, Dave? Jim, close with, why did you give up your successful career? You know, why did you start doing this? You know, why, tell us what being a good American citizen is all about. Inspire us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell your story. No pressure. All right. Tell your story. Um, so, you know, I have uh, always felt strongly about what our country stands for. And, you know, for as long as I can remember, uh, I've you know, gotten choked up at the national anthem, the, the idea that we are uh, part of something that's bigger than ourselves and people have fought and died for and struggled. It's meant a lot to me for, you know, for as long as I can remember. Uh, so when the uh, attacks of 9-11 occurred, uh, up to that point in time, I had been an entrepreneur, uh, internet and technology entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, I just committed to myself that I was going to do something to help. I had no idea what that would be. Uh, I had been through enough as an entrepreneur to know a little bit about the difference between motion and progress. So I wanted to do something that would actually be meaningful. Um, but that was my motivation. And uh, you know, especially as we uh, hurtle into uh, July 4th, I, uh, you know, when I say I believe uh, very strongly what our country stands for, I am well aware we are not perfect. You know, I am not a, uh, a mindless cheerleader for the United States. You know, we have problems, we've made mistakes. You know, there are people around the world who really don't like us, and some of them for really good reasons. So still, those founding ideals uh, that were baked into us back in uh, 1776 are an incredible set of ideas uh, that have led to, you know, health and well-being and prosperity and, you know, the flourishing of the human spirit. It's never happened anywhere else. So, um, you know, I wanted to see those have their best chance in the world. So that's why uh, I gave this a shot. When I, you know, it started off as the smallest and most simple idea I'd ever you know, thought of, and uh, it became the best and most important. You know, a little bit to my surprise, but because of that, uh, you know, I've, you know, been more than happy to stick with it. And we have an awesome team that shares those same things that I just articulated. So, um, Chris, oh, um, so that's uh, that's that. Um, you know, I think uh, you know it's a natural thing for us as a, a country to always want to do better, and uh, that's good. That's you know, I don't know if it's uniquely American, but it's you know, uh, it's something that is. Uh, special to us, and uh, uh, you know, as I've been reflecting on lately, you know, when you look back at 1776, so it's been 243 years now, I think, it will be July 4th, America was a startup, <laughs> right? And we think, I mean, think about that for a minute. And so you look at our problems now, and you go, geez, you know, what do I do, what do I do? Well, you can do something, right? Uh, you can, you know, as my dear late father said, you know, get off your dead ass and do something. Boy, you know, it's, you can do something. And uh, when you think that, you know, at a certain point in time, we had, you know, 50-some, uh, you know, courageous uh, uh, citizens who said, well, we're going to start a new country. How crazy is that? And it happened, and here we are. So we can do, there are a ton of things that people can do to, to help our uh, situation. And, you know, one of the reasons we're fired up at Spirit of America is we're just one example of people working together across political boundaries to do the right thing. And we could see a lot more. Anyway, thank you.
uh, really appreciate your coming and happy to uh, chat. And members of the team will be here for a while as well, so uh, please talk to us.